So in this series, Lasting Legacy, if you haven't been here with us for the last few weeks, just to give you the ultra-fast catch-up here, we've been looking at the ladies listed in the lineage of Jesus. Matthew, at the beginning of his gospel, lists the lineage of Jesus, and he's writing to a Jewish audience. This would have been extremely important because they want to know if Jesus is really the Messiah, did he come from King David, and is he truly in the lineage of Jesus? And Matthew does something that nobody else really did in that day. He throws in some of the ladies in the lineage of Jesus' legacy because he doesn't want them to be overlooked and he doesn't want their stories to be overlooked. And it's been a very important reminder for us that our stories are not overlooked. And whether you're a man or a woman, you are important to the work of God. And Matthew makes this point so very clear as he begins his gospel in the book of Matthew. To prove to them that Jesus is the true Messiah, he does list the lineage of Jesus and he includes these stories of these women, not just women, but their stories that many people in the audience would have preferred that he just leave out, right? Like that's part of our story that you don't have to mention. Right? If you're telling the story of your family, there's probably a few parts that you're like, I'm just going to leave that part out or that relative out. I'm just not even going to mention them. And that's how the Jewish people would have felt as Matthew gives this kind of passive aggressive way it's saying, this is the grace of God. Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 and 6 Salmon was the father of Boaz. He's building this case and then he says, And you remember who that was, right? He says, whose mother was Rahab. This would have been shocking. Rahab the prostitute. Boaz was the father of Obed. You guys remember who that was, right? Yeah. Mother was Ruth, right? And she wasn't even of Israeli descent. So he's making another bold statement. And then he's going to get down to their hero. King David, the hero of the Jewish people. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. And that's when the golf claps would have started, right? I mean, here we just got to King David, and they can't hold back. All right, you threw in some shockers there, but you're to King David now. And everybody reading or listening would have been on board And David was the father of Solomon, and the golf claps would have continued. Whose mother, oh, don't say it, don't say it, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. And you'll notice there's even a change here, because it was the mother, whose mother was Rahab, whose mother was Ruth. But then he goes even in a little bit deeper with the knife. He says, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. And he's bringing up this memory that was pretty painful. As I looked at these graduates, um, I'm a little biased because one of those graduates was my daughter. But as I look at all these graduates up here, I'm just so proud of all of them. And as I look at all of them, I think, man, who knows what story God has got ahead for every one of them. But I want to see God's glory moving in their lives. I want them all to go on and live lives that really matter, where they see God moving through their lives in such powerful ways. And these women that we see listed in the lineage of Jesus, these were women whose lives truly 
made a difference. They truly mattered. And some of them through very, very difficult circumstances. But God has rewritten their story. Matthew reminds us that Jesus has come to be the redeemer. For even people who have messed up, for even people who have seen very hard times, Jesus is the Redeemer. A few weeks ago, uh, Tiffany and I celebrated our 23rd anniversary. Yeah? 23rd and going strong. Uh, and we stuck away to New Orleans. We'd never been before. We, we got airplane tickets. Insider tip here. We got airplane tickets that were cheaper than the Uber ride from the airport to the hotel which absolutely terrified one of my daughters because she thought, you know, it's an intern flying the plane or whatever. But we got away. We went to New Orleans, and we just walked around and saw the sights and sounds and delicious food, all that sort of stuff. But one of the things you've got to see if you go there is are the graveyards. And I know that sounds really weird, but, I mean, they're just amazing. Just the way that they're structured and they're beautiful and ornate and really, really old and If you look at a graveyard, whether it's in New Orleans or anywhere else, they kind of tell a story, right? I mean, each one of these is a story of somebody's life. And it's summarized so small, right? In that little epitaph, you've you've got the birth year, the death year, and then in between. And then often there's something, uh, you know, ascribed to the person of this is how they, they were a great parent, grandparent, and friend, you know, or whatever it is that's ascribed to this person to tell their story in one small phrase. And as I walked through that graveyard, I had to wonder, when my life is all over, I wonder what it's going to mean. I wonder what is going to be carried on from my life. I want my life to truly matter. As we look at Bathsheba today, we're going to have to look at King David. And if we were to summarize David's life in a short phrase, it would have been, I think, a verse that we find in 1 Kings 15.5. It says this, For David had done what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. He had obeyed the Lord's commands throughout his life. And that would be great if there was a period right there. Except in the affair concerning Uriah the Hittite. As I read that scripture this week, I just thought, man, how, how many exceptions are there going to have to be on my tombstone? You know, Adam sought the Lord. He prayed. He loved his family. Except A, except B, except C, you know, and I don't want that to be my story. But we see in David here, the hero of the Israelite people, he was a man after God's own heart, except there's an asterisk here. When it comes to the affair concerning Uriah the Hittite, because Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. So as we begin this story, we can't talk about Bathsheba without talking about King David and Uriah in there as well. So just a little bit about David that's going to lead us up to this point. David is the same David, if you're just you know familiar with some of the Bible stories, he's the same David that is David and Goliath. As a young man, as a teenage boy, he goes out and he conquers 
the biggest giant that there ever was, and then rallies the Israelite troops to, to take the land that God had given them. So this is King David. As a very young man, he's a hero. And from there, he's going to go on, and he's going to become a mighty young warrior. I mean, God's hand is upon him in everything that he seems to do, to the place where eventually, when the king dies, David is made the new king of Israel. And everything that he seems to do is working. He's the commander of these armies, and God's favor is upon them. But by the time we catch up to this story, David's going to be about 50 years old. He's probably not as in good of shape as he used to be, right? I mean, we've, we've gone from the mighty warrior David that we see in the movies to now the actor that's got a little bit of a dad bod, right? And uh, he, he's a little bit older, but he's still a legend. He would be absolutely a legend in all of Israel, everywhere he goes, right? He, he's just a man. He's got all the power that a man could ever want. He's got all the wealth that somebody could ever want. He's got all the fame that somebody could ever want. He has reached an absolute pinnacle. And that's where the problem arises that brings us to the beginning of our text today. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 is where we'll find most of this story. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So right off the bat here, we see that David is not where he is supposed to be at. David has quite a track record of overcoming great obstacles and seeing the favor and the power of God move in great ways. But David has gotten a little bit comfortable. And he has decided for whatever reason in this moment just to hang back at the palace and take it easy and send his guys out to do the work for him. And just a side note there, hopefully you've lived enough life that you've learned this point of wisdom. Graduates, this is a freebie for you. When we get bored and when we aren't where we're supposed to be, we can get ourselves into a lot of trouble, right? Have some of you been there before? You've been bored, you weren't doing what you were supposed to be doing, and you made some really poor decisions. That's what David does in this moment. In this story, we're going to see that this choice leads to some devastating consequences, but we're also going to see God's redemption and grace as he rewrites another story, just as he's done for Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. So as we go through these, I'm going to kind of skim through the story fairly quickly because this is two chapters worth. So we're going to skim through it, but I'm going to put some of the verses up here so that you can see all of the verse if you'd like to read. But I encourage you to read Second uh, Samuel chapter 11 and 12 this week as uh, we continue to go through this series. In verse two, it tells us that David has gotten up from one of his midday naps, right? So I can just picture him waking up in the middle of the day, scratching his, his little pudge, you know, going to the refrigerator, getting some food out, and he hadn't shaved in, you know, however long, and he's just kind of being lazy. So he goes up to the roof of his palace, and he is going to walk around and look over the city as he just takes in the day, and while he's up there, all of a sudden, 
he notices something down there in the courtyard. It says he sees a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, if you're like me, you've grown up with this story, hearing about Bathsheba. If you've been in church any in your life, you're probably familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba to some point. I always thought Bathsheba, she's kind of a bad girl of the Bible, right? I mean, she's one of the shady ladies who was doing something she shouldn't be doing. And she was a seductress that was distracting this man of God. But as we look at Scripture, this isn't really the case. It's David who is up on his roof who looks down and sees her. I've heard the story so many times that Bathsheba is up on her roof bathing before him. And that's not the case. That's not what Scripture tells us has happened. The palace that David lived in would have been the highest point in all of the city. So he's at the peak of the city. It's also the tallest structure in the city. So he has, I mean, it's like being in the Tower of America, right? I mean, he can look down and see everything that he wants to see. Now, her husband, Uriah, is one of the military leaders. So they probably wouldn't have lived very far from David, maybe even just the next house or two over. And so he is able to see to her house really well. Bathsheba would have been in her courtyard. Now, when you guys think of taking a bath, you think you're inside, right? We're, we're in the old times here. They didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have a bathroom in the house with a bathtub. They had a wash basin that would have been outside in the courtyard. There's no drain, right? So Bathsheba is doing what is perfectly normal, what is perfectly private, And even from what we see in scripture, she would have been doing what would have been required of her at this time by Levitical law. So she is just taking care of some hygiene out in her courtyard privately when David is captured by her beauty. David shouldn't have been home at this time. He's where he shouldn't have been. He's looking at something he should have never been looking at. Now, King David is indeed a hero of the faith, and for good reason. The Bible even calls David a man after God's own heart. And I think part of the key there, as I work through this message this week, is the word man. Even though he is a man after God's own heart, he's still a man, and I say that in a human sense, He is a man and his humanity is showing at this point because he is making some sinful decision. We all have the propensity when we let our guard down in our lives to get lazy in our faith, to get lazy in our convictions, to get lazy in our morals and do some things that we really regret doing. John 10.10 tells us that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And the enemy just looks for those opportunities when we let our guard down, when he can cause us to make a choice that isn't very wise. In verses 3 and 4, the story is going to go on. David sees Bathsheba, and he's basically going to do the equivalent of scrolling through her Instagram or social media to check out who she is, and then he sends one of her guys over. He says, okay, who is that over there? Bring her to the palace. 
So David uses his power and his authority to bring Bathsheba to the palace. And the text says that he slept with her. Now for anybody else, this would have been punishable by death. To have an affair with somebody else. Even for Bathsheba, this is punishable by death. But David, he's exempt in this case. He exempts himself. He has abused his power and his authority. And now he's going to have to cover up his misdeeds. Now the Bible gives us no indication that Bathsheba resisted this, but it also gives us no indication whatsoever that Bathsheba welcomed this. And here's the bottom line. Bathsheba had no say in this because David is the king of Israel and he holds all the power. When David wants something, he gets something. And if you don't give him what he wants, it's punishable by death. So Bathsheba really has no opinion in this matter. She has no option to refute the king. Now the Bible, I will say, does not call this situation rape. In other places in the Bible, we do see where it calls situations rape, and those are always very forceful, violent situations. The Bible doesn't call this rape. However, in the culture that you and I live in today, we have a term for this that they didn't have in the Bible, and the term for this that we have in our culture today is power rape. If you use your influence, your power, or your position to take advantage of someone else, it's wrong. To take advantage of someone who is weaker, to take advantage of someone who is vulnerable so that you can satisfy yourself, it's wrong. And you and I know it is in the news every single week. A teacher, a coach, a principal, and I hate to say it, a pastor. Every week, somebody has used their power, their influence, or their position to take advantage of someone else. That's what David does. He's done. He sends her home. Verse 5, she's going to send word back to David. Hey, uh, awkward, but uh, I'm pregnant. You know my husband's gone to war. You're the only man I've been with. You're the baby's daddy, right? So she sends this message back to David. The problem here is she would have been the one blamed because David never had to take credit for this. She's just going to be pregnant. She would have been killed for having an affair. David, though, has a thing for Bathsheba and the baby that he's just found out about. So he's going to devise a plan to cover his tracks. Uh, And her husband, Uriah, one of David's military leaders, in verses 6 through 8, David is going to have Uriah sent home from battle. And so Uriah is going to come home from battle. And then by the time we get to verse 9, We're going to see that David encourages Uriah, hey, come home, take a break. Why don't you go on home to your wife, Bathsheba? Just relax for a few days, you know? He's hoping things just play out and he will never know the difference. But Uriah is so committed to what he is called to do and what he's supposed to be doing that he will not even go home and sleep in his own bed with his own wife. Instead, it says he sleeps on the steps of the palace until he is sent back 
into war. So David is swinging a miss on his first try. It doesn't go the way that he wants. We see in verse uh, 10 and 11, he says, why didn't you go home to your wife? He says, how could I do that while the soldiers are still out there? So he has to go to plan B. So he says, okay, why don't you come back tonight? We'll have dinner together. Well, when he gets to dinner, there is a whole lot of beverage that is, is laid out. Chug, 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 right? So he wants to get Uriah drunk. And he gets Uriah drunk, the Bible says, and then he wants to send him home again, but the same thing happens. Even when he is drunk, Uriah is so committed to what he is supposed to be doing, he sleeps on the steps once again. So now David is to plan C. So he writes a letter to Joab, who is leading the armies, seals it, and sends it with Uriah, and it is Uriah's own death notice because it's going to tell Joab, send Uriah to the front lines, and as you're in battle, I want you to pull everybody else back and basically have him assassinated. The thing about sinful choices is they just go deeper and deeper and get uglier and uglier and worse and worse, and our hearts and our minds grow more and more numb, and we find ourselves running farther and farther away from God just so we can justify our poor choices. Verses 26 and 27 says this, When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with David for what David had done. So in the Old Testament, there would have been a set period of mourning. And I realize, you know, we all understand that you don't just get over something. But in the Old Testament culture, it would have been a set period of time. So David's marking it off on the calendar. And as soon as that time is over, he sends for, he sends for Bathsheba. And he says, okay, come on, now you're going to be one of my wives. She does go ahead and have the baby, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. I think it's important to note here, the Lord's displeased with what David did. So again, if we're blaming Bathsheba for this, we see no indication in the Bible that God is blaming Bathsheba. He is blaming David for what David has done. I'm not trying to encourage us to be hypersensitive here or villainize everybody who has more power. And God wants us to use the opportunities that we have to do good. But what I do want you to see here is that even, even when other people do things that put you in a very difficult situation, it's wrong, it's uncomfortable, it feels like you're all alone. We can see here in this text, God does not overlook us. That God sees Bathsheba in the midst of this and God sees us in the midst of wrongful treatment and bad situations. God sees what we are going through. So now she is one of David's wives. That's his choice. She didn't have a say in the matter. She's pregnant with his child. She's now given birth to the child. There's no recourse, but God is displeased with what has happened here. Have you ever been in a situation where other people have made choices and it makes you look bad and they may still look like the hero and everybody thinks they're the hero, but because of what they have chosen, it's left you wounded. It's left you 
looking like you are the bad one. God sees the injustice. He sees the circumstances that we are going through. And because uh, God is displeased with David, he's going to send a prophet, somebody to speak on God's behalf to him. Nathan and David, Nathan is the prophet, would have been familiar with David. They have known each other uh, because David has had a fear of the Lord and Nathan is a prophet who speaks for the Lord. So they would have had encounters with one another before, but Nathan knows absolutely nothing about what happened between David and Bathsheba, right? I mean, he didn't get an inside scoop. Nobody sent him an email saying, hey, here's the situation. Could you go talk to David? The only person who has said anything to Nathan is God himself. And God himself doesn't even really tell him what happens. He just says, I want you to go share a story with David. And so Nathan one day is going to go up and knock on the palace door. And David says, hey, Nathan, so glad that you are here today. Come on in. What, what do you have to share with me today? You know, And he's hoping it's a, a great prophecy about going to battle and being the victor. But he shares a very different story with him this particular time. He says, I want to tell you about this situation. I want to see if you, as the king, could give me some godly advice in how I need to to handle a dispute that I'm having to deal with. Because a prophet would have had to handle disputes many times too, to say, okay, here's what God wants to happen in this situation. He tells this story about a very, very rich man who had all of the sheep, all of the livestock that he could possibly want. And in those days, livestock was wealth. And so here's a man who's very wealthy. And then he tells the story about a man who's very poor. This man is so poor, he hardly has anything of his own. As a matter of fact, he just has one lamb. And because it's his only lamb, he loves it like his own child. He even carries it. And the Bible says that he, he allows this lamb to eat from his own plate and drink from his own cup. He loves this lamb so much. Well, one particular day, this rich man is having some people over, so he needs to throw a big barbecue, right? He wants to host well. But instead of going out and getting one of his own lambs, he goes to the poor man and has one of his men take the poor man's lamb, and he serves it up for dinner. Instead, he took the only thing that the poor man had, and as David hears this, as, as Nathan is asking, how should I respond to this situation? Here's David's response in chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. And then in verse 7, we see Nathan's response to David. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. The Lord God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I have even given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Am- that the Ammonites stole from his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife as your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, 
I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You, what you did discreet, secretly, I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. That's pretty harsh. Nathan says, David, this is you. This is your own choice that you have made and the consequences are going to be severe. Now, Bathsheba in the midst of that is going to be unharmed. I mean, I say unharmed. She's still got a lot to deal with. She's still got scars in the midst of all of this, right? But David goes on. He says in verse 13, Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Conviction from God is the love of God. And whether you're one of our graduates or whether you're well on up into your adult years, I want to encourage you, when you feel the conviction of God, don't ignore the conviction of God. We're not supposed to walk around feeling guilty and putting ourselves down, but we should never ignore the conviction of our God. He goes on, nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and the child died. The Bible goes on to say that they both fasted and prayed because they loved this child and they wanted this child to live, but the child dies. And I can, honestly, I can even look at that and go, man, why did this child have, have to pay the expense here? David will go on to find forgiveness. He's going to have to deal with a lot of pain and misery because of his actions. And even worse, he's going to have to watch his family deal with pain and misery because of his actions. Some of you are in that place. Some of the pain and misery you've had to deal with in life is because of what your family member has chosen. I want you to know in the midst of that, God sees our pain. And just like we can see here with Bathsheba, she's left holding the pieces of this to put it all back together. So that's the story of David and Bathsheba in a nutshell. I don't think she's the one that caused it. She finds God's grace and God's mercy. As we'll see in a second, God is going to go on and rewrite her story even more. But she's got a lot to deal with. And just like last week, I do want to say, if this is too close to home for you for some of the things you're dealing with. We do have extra prayer partners that will be back in the kitchen right directly back there afterwards. If you need somebody to pray with in private, we would love to pray with you privately. But there's just a few quick takeaways I want to give us that we see here in this message. First of all, having power, position, and privilege are supposed to be tools for God's glory. God gives every one of us different opportunities. God gives every one of us different resources. God gives every one of us different moments when we can make a difference in people's lives. The problem with power, position, and privilege is how we use it. It's always meant for us to be able to use it for God's glory. 
But when we use our power, our position, or our privilege to take advantage of others, it's never okay. It is always wrong. It's always wrong to take advantage of others, and it's always wrong as a culture or a community to look the other way when other people are taking advantage of others. The second thing we can see in the story of David and Bathsheba is that temptation does not discriminate. Here's David, one of the godliest men in all of Israel, most powerful men in all of Israel, and temptation is going to come knocking on his door. No matter who you are or what position or what privilege that you hold, you will face temptation because it will find you, just like it found David. But the good news is God always makes a way for us to resist it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, He will show you a way out so that you can endure. Next takeaway here, and this one's kind of tough for me. Forgiveness is not fair. We, we live in a culture that wants justice done, especially in cases like this, right? I mean, especially when somebody with power has taken advantage of somebody else, we want justice done, right? We don't even want to see the cop speeding next to us, right? Because he's taking advantage of his position, But I would dare to say forgiveness by definition is not fair because you are being given grace for an act that you committed or something you were supposed to do but you didn't do. David will go on to write in Psalm 51 his prayer of repentance and I encourage you to read it this week but he's genuinely broken before God And he genuinely finds the grace and redemption that God gives. It doesn't erase his past. It doesn't hide the scars. It doesn't erase the consequences. But God can redeem and restore every person and every story. And we can can look at this and we can say, But in David's situation, is that really fair? I mean, look at what he did. And then I could turn it back to myself and to all of us and say, you know what, though? I'm the one who took the lamb away. I sinned. I've sinned and you've sinned. And we are all guilty of sin. The last takeaway here is that restoration always leads to repentance. And we see that in David's life as he did Repent, and he is restored. No matter what situation we're facing, God can redeem and restore. So, last little bit here. The rest of the story, if you remember Paul Harvey, right? For those of you who are my age or older. The rest of the story here, Bathsheba. Her story is going to go on in uh, 2 Samuel 12, 24, then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and named him Solomon. And the Lord loved the child. Solomon's going to go on to become the wisest man ever, the Bible says. He will take over eventually the throne from David. And even as David is dying in his deathbed, Bathsheba goes to him and says, hey, remember 
Solomon is going to be the next king. And he says, yes, Solomon is the next king. As the family's starting to fight over all of the power and money, it's given to Bathsheba's child, Solomon. Solomon, of course, is the one who goes on in the lineage of Jesus. But here's the last thing that I thought was so cool this week as I studied this. Solomon writes the book of Proverbs, which is full of wisdom, things that he's learned about how to live a godly life, right? How, how we seek after God. And I've, I've always heard of Proverbs chapter 31 because it talks about having a godly wife and, you know, living as a godly woman. And I thought, man, okay, you know, that's neat. I've always heard Proverbs chapter 31. But I guess I've always overlooked the beginning of the chapter because this is what it says. Proverbs 31, 1. The sayings of King Lemuel, and scholars say that Lemuel was another name for Solomon. The sayings of King Lemuel contain the message which his mother taught him, Bathsheba. O my son, O son of my womb, O son of my vows, do not waste your strength on women, on those who ruin kings. She's telling him, be careful. Don't make bad choices. And the entire chapter is wisdom coming from Bathsheba. And when you consider all that she has been through, it makes this chapter so rich. Even verses 8 and 9, it says this, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those who are being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. Bathsheba speaking from her heart here. As he continues to quote the wisdom that he learned from his mom, verse 30 and 31. Charm is deceitful and beauty does not last, but a woman who fears the Lord will be greatly praised. Reward her for all she has done and let her deeds publicly declare her praise. Another story that has been through heartbreak and pain, and God has turned it around to redemption. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I know every person in this room is facing different situations, stress, things going on in their lives, but Father, I also know that you are a good God who sees and who knows that there's nobody here today who is overlooked or forgotten And Father, I thank you that you are the redeemer of all things. Father, that you are the redeemer of the broken and the hurt and the lost and the overlooked. And Father, today I pray that your Holy Spirit will comfort and call us to you. We thank you that you sent Jesus on our behalf as all these stories lead up to the redemption that was made for each of us. Father, we thank you that we can be yours. Would you take just one moment in your own words, and ask God to be your redeemer. Thank God for Jesus who came and died on our behalf that we might be his. God, once again, we thank you for these stories that remind us of your grace and your goodness and your power to turn around even the darkest moments in our lives. Lord, we pray that you continue to work in every heart. Help us to reflect your light everywhere that we go. In the name of Jesus, amen.